0: We're continuing our serious conversations with Jesus. Today, the passage I'll be reading from and speaking on mainly will be Matthew chapter 9 and from verse 9. We'll come to that a bit later, but if you want to be looking for Matthew chapter 9 uh, now, you can. And probably in your Bibles, this section will be headlined, Jesus Calls Matthew. But before we get to that, I just want to do sort of an introduction... A sort of get you thinking a bit to get into the right kind of mindset and mood for this passage. Now, in the interest of transparency, as they do now in newspapers and on the BBC website, I need to make it clear that most of the ideas I'm going to use now, I've lifted uh, from Tom Robin and Tom Wright's books, uh, so uh, just to protect myself from uh, inf- copyright infringements. Right. I want you to think about traffic wardens. (laughs) What image does that phrase bring to mind? We've already had some immediate responses uh, come from a few people. But have you ever thought what it must be like to be a traffic warden? It must be a job where you need to develop a thick skin because of the abuse and dislike you come across each day. You know, often it's seen as being a money-making exercise for local government. And now, uh, and particularly, making money from things you used to be able to do for free. Added to that, with uh, traffic warden work being privatised, is also making money for the operating company as well. But who gets all the stick from all of this is the poor traffic warden you see on the street. Now, tax collectors had a similar image problem in Jesus' day. Except that Matthew was collecting taxes for the Roman stooge Herod. Capernaum, where this story takes place, was on the boundary between Herod's territory and that which had been given to his brother Philip. So now, where under his father, also called Herod, Herod the Great, the one who was around when Jesus was born, where this area had been, if you like, one person's territory, it now was two people's territory. You've now got a boundary. So now you have to pay tolls and taxes when you cross that boundary. And the first place you come to after you've crossed that boundary is Capernaum. So that's sort of the context of where we are as this story takes place. So, Matthew chapter 9 and from verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he called to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I thought for this one I would do the conventional three-point sermon, and after a little bit of thinking I've managed to find three C's uh, for the three points. So if you uh, like three-point sermons, these are the three parts. The confusion, the core, and the cost. So let's start with the confusion first. The Pharisees were confused. They were expecting the Messiah to come. Not a great big surprise, because as Paul was pointing out uh, last week, Even the Samaritan woman was expecting the Messiah to come. It was in the air. There was this expectation. The Messiah is about to come. Now to the Pharisees it is obvious, to some extent, why the Messiah was not there yet. The people didn't deserve him. They were not following the law. Accurately enough. There were too many sinners around. So, if Jesus was the Messiah, why was he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why wasn't he with them, the righteous ones? Jesus replied to them, Gets to the heart of this matter. It's not sick people. Sorry, it's not the well people who need a doctor. It's the sick people. Now, when Isaac was taken to a and yesterday, it was because he was sick. The days when he's well, you don't worry about doctors. Jesus had come to heal the sickness of sin in people. So he needs to go to the sinners. Pretty obvious really. And there's also here just a hint. That actually yes he is the Messiah. Because if he's the doctor. He's. In that sense, somehow separate from the sinners, and if there are any, the well people. But there's also a challenge for the Pharisees, as also if they think this through: are they well or are they sick? Because actually, there's only one thing worse, in a sense, than taking a sick person to see the doctor. And that's a sick person who won't go to see the doctor. So, how are they going to respond to that? And there's a brief reference, which he tells them, says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which comes from Hosea's prophecy, chapter 6 and verse 6. I won't pick up on that now because we haven't got time. But I suspect when he's telling them to go and look at it, he's probably suggesting they go and look at the whole prophecy, which is just sort of a key bit, you know, have a look at this. But if you're going to really understand what Jesus is saying, you almost need to look at the whole uh, prophecy of Hosea, the whole context. I say, isn't time for that? If you have got time during the week, have a look at it. So, that's the Pharisees, confused. There's the call. At the beginning of the passage I read, Jesus called Matthew to follow him, and he did. If you are here when I was speaking on the call of some of the early disciples, I made the point then... That when we look at the Gospels, it's sometimes easy to assume that Jesus just wafts in, calls people, almost at random, and they follow him. That could be what's happened here with Matthew. Because the Gospel doesn't give us any more information. (coughs) But let me suggest a slightly different scenario. First bit of evidence. If we look at the way the Pharisees were muttering to Jesus' disciples about him, I think it's fairly clear this wasn't a one-off occurrence. You know, if Jesus had just gone off once to have a meal with these uh, tax collectors and sinners... They might just shrug it off as an aberration or something. The fact they're actually talking to his disciples about it would suggest to me that, that Jesus has got form on this. And it's something which they've been getting uptight about over the previous weeks or however long. And they can't hold on to what they're thinking about Jesus any longer. So it suggests to me that Jesus was regularly spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And by the way, you might think this, this word sinners, in most of the commentaries, they uh, say that this is, if you like, is a technical term here, uh, referring to people who because of the work they did or their circumstances, couldn't keep themselves ritually clean. So it might not be sinners as we might interpret it, as people who are immoral, but there are people who, as far as the Pharisees and the scribes are concerned, were people who didn't keep closely enough to the uh, ritual purity laws. After all, tax collectors tend to usually get included in this because uh, somewhere along the line they would be having to interact with people who weren't Jews, and that could lead to ritual impurity. When we look, if you look at the parallel passage in Mark and chapter two, verse fifteen, this is my second piece of evidence. Because in Mark chapter two and verse fifteen. It says the following. And as he reclined at table in his house, talking about Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So the Bible also gives us evidence that tax collectors and sinners were following Jesus. In fact, many of them were following Jesus. So when Matthew heard that call, he could already have been a follower of Jesus. It wouldn't necessarily have been something coming out of the blue. Certainly, if he was down outside in Capernaum, he probably probably, at the minimum, have heard Jesus preach at some point in the recent past. Third piece of evidence, if you look in Luke chapter 3 and verses 12 to 13, this is talking about John the Baptist at this point. So, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 12, we say here that tax collectors also came to be baptised, implication by John the Baptist, and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorised to do so. So John the Baptist had been preparing the way for Jesus. And part of that preparation were tax collectors were coming and saying, what have we got to do to put ourselves right with God? So, not only were the Pharisees and the Samaritans but also, tax collectors and sinners were looking for this Messiah who was coming. Now, from the context of the passage, I think it, whichever way you interpret it, after Matthew gets this call from Jesus he calls his friends together to have a meal with them at his house. Probably to tell them that he's going off to follow with Jesus. Some of them might already be Jesus' followers. Some of them probably weren't. But Jesus was happy to mix with both lots of people. People whom the Pharisees were not are willing to mix with. So if Jesus was happy to mix with people who the righteous ones thought you shouldn't mix with are we also willing to? And then my third part, the cost. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 28, we're told that Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. Why do you think Matthew had become a tax collector in the first place, given their image problem? Why would anyone want to become a tax collector in that context? well paid after all you've got the context from what John the Baptist said when he told them only take what you ought to take but uh, they were uh, taking a bit on the side and we get that a bit in Zacchaeus' story in uh, the Gospels as well money an office job as opposed to having to be a fisherman who knows But he's taken this job because, to him at least, there's benefits in doing it. And it's worth him doing it. The cost to him in following Jesus is greater than the cost to Peter. And John. Why? And Andrew and James and the others. Well, what do we know about the fishermen? When things went wrong, inverted commas, at the end, they went back fishing. And if you look in John's Gospel, when they go back fishing, it tells you that seven of the remaining eleven disciples go fishing. The other four don't. I don't know if that's because they're not there, or maybe they're like Matthew and they can't fish. They haven't got a job to go back to. When Matthew follows Jesus, he's giving up a good job. And if things go wrong, he hasn't got that to go back to. Now, the others were in their sort of family business. If things go wrong, they can go back to the family business. So, there's a bigger cost for Matthew in following Jesus than for some of the other disciples. And the same is going to be true when we see people come to salvation. For some people, the cost is going to be bigger than for others. But, whether there is a cost which is bigger or not, for all of us in following Jesus, there is a cost. Following Jesus is not just uh, something we do to get extra benefits for ourselves added on to what our life is before. Following Jesus is going to have a cost at some time, in some way. One of the costs is probably, for, for, for everyone, being misunderstood, maligned, misrepresented, and I was going to put foolish, but that doesn't start with an M, so maybe mad. I think possibly the hardest one of that is being misunderstood, maligned, misrepresented. No, I can cope with being people thinking I'm mad. But when people think I believe things which I don't believe, that is difficult. And in fact, I think most contexts I can think of where I would say I've had a degree of persecution, with I think about one exception, I think all of them were what I would consider mistakes. And that, again, can be hard to deal with. You know, in one sense, if you're being persecuted because you are following Jesus, and you're being persecuted because what you believe about Jesus, I can cope with that. If I'm being persecuted because people think I believe something I don't believe because I'm a follower of Jesus, that's a lot harder to cope with. Because it's, you know, it's well, apart from any, any persecution isn't right, but it's doubly not right. You know, but that, that is one of the things, one of the costs of following Jesus. Another cost. Do you want to be known as a friend of traffic wardens? Are you happy with that, Steve? Uh, <laughs> I did pick you out, but I don't... <laughs> You're going to. Yeah, but, you know, sometimes it's... You know, Jesus can call us into contact with people who we wouldn't naturally choose. But even, even if we have to then cope with that, you've then also got to cope with the fact of other people, what other people will think about you because of what you're doing. You know, you, you, if you're not careful, you can get your head into a total uh, whirl on this sort of thing. Or drug dealers, or any other group of people who would be either despised by society generally, or by those who would conceive themselves as religious or righteous. So you could get it from both ends. And to take a political analogy, once the decision was made to hold the EU referendum last year, was it? Uh, Or whenever, there's going to be future costs, whether we remained or whether we left. In fact, the fact that a decision has to be made changes the situation. And therefore, any calculations which were made before the decision no longer work. It doesn't matter which way the decision went, it would have consequences. And you wouldn't be aware of what those consequences were before you made that decision. So there's a cost in choosing to follow Jesus. But there's also a cost... In not following him. If we go in Matthew's gospel, we won't look at the passage, but if you go back two sections, because the bit about calling Matthew comes at sort of the end of, I think, about seven different sections, just different interactions Jesus had with people. You go back to, Jesus is over in Gadaria. And there's a couple of uh, demoniacs, people affected by demons. Jesus clears the demons out of them. Demons go into the pigs. Pigs go over the cliff into the lake. (coughs) Pigs drown. (coughs) Now, consequence of that, somebody's out of pocket. So the people in that area they recognise what Jesus has done but rather than rejoicing in the fact that these two people have been set free they think if Jesus stays around here it could have a higher cost for us please go away. (coughs) And that's what Jesus does. He goes away. So we have a choice when Jesus calls us, as he does, to follow him, do we accept the costs which that implies? Some of those costs we might be aware of, some of them we won't be aware of. But equally, if we choose not to accept those costs, we risk the other costs. Of Jesus uh, going, not being there. Recently, I found there's a link uh, on Twitter, I think it was, to somebody's academic paper. I think they might have written it for their PhD or for some studies. And what this person was trying to do was look, was there any record in the other historical things in the first century? of what the Bible tells us happened when Jesus was crucified, where it talks about the curtain being torn in two and dead bodies coming back to life. It's, quite a, it's a very interesting paper. It, it's one of these things, you can't come to hard conclusions on, there isn't enough evidence. But one thing which really struck me in reading this article, when the temple curtain was torn in two, how would a Christian preacher interpret that? Usually we hear, we've got access to God. There's no, no barrier between us and God. This article was saying, a Jewish preacher would interpret that that God had left the temple. He's no longer there. Now, this wasn't actually, I don't think there's any non Christian reference to that uh, there, but there's quite a few references from AD 30 to 70 when the temple left, or things happening at the temple which people interpreted at that time in the, the records that possibly God's left the temple. The door opens mysteriously at night. The candles go out. People are getting, after 30, between 30 and 70 AD, there was this concern, keeps coming, popping up in the literature of the time, has God left the temple? Which I thought was quite interesting. Again, it doesn't prove anything either way, but it's interesting that those things were happening. So, the risk of God leaving where He says He will be is real. And you look at Christian history, you can see churches which have sort of fizzled out. Places where there were churches in the past, where there aren't churches now. Nations where there were thriving churches in the past, where there's hardly a church at all now. So it's a challenge we need to take seriously. I think equally we also need to remember what we've already been reminded today, where Jesus says later in the Gospel that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But we that doesn't mean we don't equally take the challenge are we going to respond to what god's calling us to cuz as we've said in the past over quite a period of time and i think this reminds us if we're going to see people saved in our town which is what we want to see it is going to change the situation what we've got in the church It won't be the same. It won't be as comfortable. There's a cost. Are we willing to take that cost? Or do we want to keep our comfort? And it's one thing, I I know from my own experience, it's one thing to say, yes, I'm willing to pay the cost, Lord. It gets a bit harder when there actually is a cost to pay. But, unless we're willing to face up to the fact that there will be a cost to pay, unless we are willing to say, Lord, yes, we are willing to accept that cost, we're not even going to get to the point where we've got to make that decision, in a sense. But, I think... Looking at the way, particularly within the Relational Mission New Frontiers uh, family of churches, looking at where churches have grown, it's because churches have been willing to pay a cost. Usually, where you find a church where it suddenly, the numbers going suddenly increases, they get quite a few people saved it's usually not the people they've been reaching out to. It's usually some similar group, but not necessarily the same people. But it almost seems to be the case that the fact that they've shown their willingness to pay the cost, God responds to that and sends people in. So I encourage us, let us be willing to pay the cost. Now I think it's an, it is an exciting time in the church. The fact that we have now having deacons it's going to increase the capacity of the church to respond to situations. But when God gives us uh, people who might be difficult, who might not fit in easily. Let us remember that all of us, as we again, we sang earlier, you know, our best effort. I'm not paraphrasing the words because I can't remember the exact words, I did write them down at the time, but I'm a bit away from that. You know, our best efforts are filthy rags. These Pharisees might have thought they'd got things sorted out, but they were sick in need of a doctor. We were sick in need of a doctor. Any righteousness we have. It's not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. So, we're very much in the situation that we are those whom the doctor has healed and is continuing to heal. And we wish to bring others in to his healing too. Let's pray.